Welcome to the Life in the Stocks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Matt Stocks. I'm the host, and the show features unedited, in-depth, candid conversations with a wide range of musicians, actors, comedians, and creatives. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to Life in the Stocks on your favorite podcast platform. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and indeed all major podcast platforms. Be sure to give me a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as well, at MattStocksDJ. That way you can keep up to date with all of my live Q&A dates, my DJ performances, and of course, who's coming up on the show as well. But without further ado, let's crack on with the show, shall we? Here we go. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Uh, I've been listening to a few of your previous podcast appearances in the lead up to this conversation. And I don't know how I hadn't noticed this before, um, but you have this lovely interchangeable accent that sounds quite American sometimes. And then like really, really British at other moments. And it kind of, it's just different words hops back and forth. Um, I love it. It's a very so it kind of depends on who I'm talking to, right? So it's like <laughs> I get like, it, I get it. Yeah. So like if I'm if I'm you know, see it might it might start to kind of creep out a little bit right now. It's like, oh dear. <laughs> By the end of this interview, you'll be like, well, I'm off for tea now. Yeah. Well, I did just have some toast in my mind. Keeping the scene yeah. alive over there. That's right, that's right. And when do you come here? Like... What, to England? Yeah. You you mentioned when... you you're coming over to see your dad, or has that happened already? No, I'm coming in October. I mean, well, it's October already, in, in about two weeks. Right yeah. on. And and you're around for a while, or is it like a brief fleeting in and out visit? It'll, it'll be about two weeks, I think. Yeah. Ah. Well, I'm so. I'm I'm around all of that month on tour. Uh, and cool. I'm sure there'll be some shows, if not in Cambridge, then definitely near. Are you going to be in Cambridge, or are you going to be in London? No, I'll be in London most of the time. I actually might go to Cambridge for the weekend because my older brother lives there still. And that's where I grew up. But my dad has been in London pretty much the whole time. So, Well, I yeah. want to get into the story of all of that stuff. Um, yeah. Very quickly, I remember briefly meeting your dad 
uh, at Download Festival in yes. 2014. And he yeah. was he was on the no, stage. It would have been, been 2016 or 17, right? Because I joined the band in 2016. Then it would have been 17 because 17. Uh, yeah. it was the year I broke up with my ex. And I, she'd given me, she was like an agent. And she had one of those funky passes that gets you everywhere. And she yeah. left the festival and she'd given me hers. And she okay. was like, look, I know No Effect is your favorite band ever. And I know that you want to go and speak to them and say hello. So I'm going to give you my pass. And it had her name on it. She's like, but whatever you do, don't misbehave. And I was, I was on my best behavior. But yeah, I went and watched the show on the stage. Yeah, and I remember that. Your dad was there. And <laughs> I turned around. Do you know Ian Richards? Have you met Ian? He, he promotes a lot of like, no effect shows I, in the UK. Yeah, Big guy, yeah, yeah, yeah. bald head, yeah, glasses. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Ian was on stage with me and I go, I pointed at your dad and I said, who the hell is that mad man? No, I said, is that Melvin's dad? Yeah, Because <laughs> exactly. he kind of looks like an older Melvin. With <laughs> and he was like, oh, I don't know, actually. And it turned out it was yours. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Longest dreadlocks in, U- in the UK, maybe. Apart from maybe I mean, Don Letts. I reckon he, your, yeah, dad, exactly. your dad exactly. is second. So yeah. is your mum and are your mum and dad both British? No, both of them are actually Czech in Czech Republic. The plot thickens. Yeah, or well, it was called the Czech Republic. I think you can still call it that because I don't like calling it Czechia. It's weird. But they are both Czech and moved to England in 1968 when the Russians kind of invaded and reinvaded um, to escape, you know, being basically, you know, behind the Berlin Wall, essentially um and moved to to london and then met in london so they didn't know each other in in czech republic oh wow okay so they were both they were both from the czech republic but they Mm -hmm. didn't know each other there they only met when they they made it over this side yeah around you know among some other czech friends and then they um met there and had me and my brother and my dad was going to uh he was studying nuclear physics in cambridge so yeah so we moved to Cambridge and then then they split up essentially pretty soon after me and my younger brother were born. We're just about a year apart, 13 months apart. And so then he moved back to London. So so I've been and then I grew up in Cambridge until I was 12. And that's with your mom? With my mom, but seeing my dad a lot and going to to London a lot. And my dad's quite a sort of, you know, um, eccentric character and. I mean, and, I, I saw that, I saw that when I met him. Lord only knows what he would have been like in the swinging sixties, escaping communism and discovering yeah. Carnaby Street and all of that wonderful stuff. Not Did so he... much, not so much into that scene. He's he's a super, you know, very politically active and huge punk fan. Actually, kind of, you know, we used to do a lot of pogoing in his room to Anarchy in the UK and huge Sex Pistols fan. He's actually in some some of the there's some YouTube footage of when they did some reunion and he's in the front like you know. So that's pretty cute. But um yeah not not so much I mean not not like a Rasta or anything, just the dreadlocks are sort of deceiving in that sense. It's sort of more like, you know, a bit of an anarchist and a a rebel. A rebel. There you go. That'll be a nice way to say it. So you, you grew know, up surrounded by of- kind of British punk and and two-tone and and all of that good stuff was that very much the soundtrack to your childhood absolutely yeah yeah that's kind of where it started you're way more legit than your american counterparts then hell yeah (laughs) i know 
uh yeah I just I didn't I mean I didn't even understand the American punk scene very much I sort of thought it was a bit uh try hard go on you can say it well a little bit white bread you know (laughs) so like what is it what is this all these like happy Californians talking about you know I don't know love and stuff like it didn't it felt very when I first moved I felt it felt a bit strange I, I I didn't really understand kind of where that energy was coming from because it felt very sort of relaxed and easy in the in California compared to you know England in the 80s and Thatcherism and how difficult it actually was you know and that was that was kind of what I grew up around so you know pretty depressive times um and then depressing just financially and you know I mean I used to help my dad break into squats for people and we you know we were living in the East End and in Brixton and so it was sort of you know that that felt very much like that's what working class punk rock is mm. right and, and ska and rock steady scene and so moving to, to California was kind of a bit of a a bit of a shock but I actually ended up living really close to Gilman Street um which is well how old are you sorry when you moved to the states how old are you 12 12, 12. yeah so you, you had a full childhood in England and definitely mm. like enough experiences here to I guess form your worldviews and kind of yeah, opinions about certain things uh so very quickly before we get to america would you say looking back um was the childhood like happy was it exciting was it challenging was it all of the above what was the uk first 12 year period of your life like looking back now i'm i'm i actually had a really nice i would say a happy childhood i had um you know it wasn't easy in some ways but uh you know we we didn't have money but that doesn't matter to me i think if you have good sort of people around you that doesn't matter at all and my mom's quite eccentric also we did a lot of traveling we um we lived in kind of all of all through europe we did a lot of uh, my mom was sort of just kind of the idea of being a kind of housewife of you know taking care of i have an older brother also who's a punk rocker and a skinhead and stuff and a mod so we were all kind of you know the three of us in the house and she sort of said i don't want to be a bored english housewife so we rented out our council house and she bought a van and put beds in the back and we traveled all the way through europe when i was seven and my brother was six and my mom was a clown and we would play street theater in every little town we would get to wow so, so she's kind of a wild woman too and um that's amazing in, yeah and then we lived in india for a while we lived in greece so um my english childhood was very kind of sweet and idyllic and and you know lovely i i i feel like i had a good childhood i mean there was lots of difficult things around and i mean the street i lived on was really crazy all that kind of stuff we you know definitely had some time in around a lot of violence and not not personally in our family so much but um you know it was a wild time the 80s were 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 depressing and difficult and and england was going through a lot so all of that was very i was very aware of that you know i was a very concerned about you know nuclear war and things like that the things that you worry about as a kid you know so but most of all i was pretty pretty had a pretty good and sweet childhood i would say it sounds i know you can sometimes put the rose-tinted specs on but it sounds like a life of of adventure 
and I think as a young person, if you're exposed early on to as many different cultures as you were, it puts you in such a good position, I think, to be a good, fully formed, fully rounded adult um, and somebody who sees the world as it is, which is this kind of beautifully diverse, you know, rich tapestry of all, all different strokes of folks. Absolutely. Which not everybody has, you know, a lot of people lead quite sheltered backgrounds um, up to a certain age, like to be that um, travel savvy before you've even hit your teenage years and moved to America. Was that still mind blowing when you landed in the West Coast of America as a, a teen, even though you'd yeah. seen so much to being kind of like that classic 80s high school movie? clicks in the cafeteria kind of scenario that must have seemed like almost like the opposite to you what your upbringing had led you to believe which is like everybody is equal and kind of yeah i mean i think that um we had lived in so many different places and i had seen a lot but i hadn't experienced yeah the west coast you know u.s Cal excuse me californian kind of um schooling system was so strange and people I mean I had major culture shock and I had lived in third world countries so it was it was definitely um sort of a period of adjusting and especially as a teenager it wasn't quite so clicky as you see in the films because oh. it was California and it wasn't but I did actually live in Alaska for a little while and that did feel like the films so, you know like that was sort of like you know you could you know, there was cheerleaders and all this kind of weird stuff, which, you know, coming from England is so just strange and foreign and American. And it, um, so I got a little, you know, I went to roller skating rinks and like first dances and all this kind of strange, like, you know, in England, no one touched each other at that point at all. Like you didn't hug at all. You didn't even do a quick hug at the end of a goodbye or something. So, you know, you move to the States and suddenly everyone's sort of like, puts their arms around you and does a first, you know, the first dance. And it's like so awkward in your teenage <laughs> It's weird. Just a very, it felt very different. Um, Did you slot in okay? It was hard for a while. You know, I, I, that's why I think I attached myself to, you know, back into this kind of ska and punk scene because I just didn't relate to what they were listening to or what the, you know, everybody was into Duran Duran and stupid, weird shit like that, that I just was like, fuck that, you know, let's, uh, so I found my sort of niche of people, which were like the punk rockers and the skaters and the, you know, new wave kids and that kind of thing. So that's sort of where, you know, you did find a small group of people that were into that and continued on, you know, being around them and making those kinds of friendships. And that was the Gilman scene, as you, you mentioned earlier on, which for those who don't know is, you know, that kind of fertile period in West Coast punk and ska, where it was kind of Green Day and Operation Ivy. And um, yeah. who else would have been around at that time that would be known now? I mean, a lot of bands went through there, you know, Bouncing, Skull, Bouncing Souls, AFI were starting up when Dancehall Crashers were sort of getting started. and. Um, I mean, kind of everybody went through there. Fishbone, of course, played there. Hepcat. Um, but it was basically Green Day's like clubhouse, right? 
Yeah, I mean, they lived they lived a little further out. They lived in Penol, so but you know they kind of claim that they're from kind of the Berkeley area because they moved closer to Gilman at that point. But uh, yeah, I mean, it was it was definitely Operation Ivy was and Rancid. I mean, the first Rancid shows were probably there. I would assume Screw Thirty Two, um, a lot of small East Bay punk bands, but but everybody that was on tour. I mean, it's still going on. The Gilman Street project is still happening, which is phenomenal you know it's it's still got that nice that nice kind of diy community feel to it that is what it is um so yeah i mean i kind of everybody played there you know everybody was it like the west coast cbgb did it have that similar exactly yeah yeah yeah. very much so except that it wasn't a bar it's all ages right cbgb's is a bar and this is all ages and that's what's made it so special because it was one of the only places you could go so how old were you when you first started going there? Was it like immediate, 13, 14, or a little bit later? No, probably 16, 15, 16, because we moved around quite a bit at the beginning of moving to the state. So I probably went there about 15, and my brother was a year younger than me, and he was going there a bit more than I was, so about 15, 16, yeah. And did you see super early shows by Green Day and Operation Ivy? I saw Operation Ivy, and I saw... Um, I mean, Skanking Pickle, Hepcat, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, a bunch of those kinds of bands. So, um, yeah, I saw Green Day somewhere else earlier. I think it was Sprawl Plaza or something like that, which was in Berkeley, California, like the, the UC Berkeley campus. There was a lot of shows there as well, as well. So, and a lot of ska shows, and yeah, it was it was quite a scene, and it still it still is. But you know, and then we used to have dance craze every saturday night at midnight at the uc theater movie theater that was they would play dance craze and rocky horror picture show so that was kind of another little area you could go at midnight i think it was at midnight that on saturday nights it was where all the sort of young people went because we couldn't get into bars you know because in england you can go to the pub but you can't here until you're 21. no which is ridiculous yeah it's um i, I mean can, <laughs> that's it probably makes no we... sense you can yeah I was going to say it's probably why we've got a nation of binge drinkers in the UK. Is because oh. <laughs> it's encouraged from such a young age. It's like we. <laughs> but it makes no sense. You can drive when you're 16. You can vote and go to the army by 18, but you can't drink until you're 21. Ridiculous. Yeah. Nuts. Makes sense. Absolutely nuts. So, Was it? Yeah. Um, was um Tim and Matt from Rancid, were they in an early incarnation of your old mm-hmm. band? Am I right mm-hmm. in uh thinking this was the case? That's that's interesting. So they what had finished Operation IV and were this was before Rancid that they started that group and then left to do Rancid? Or what happened? They I believe it was about the same they was they were ending Operation RV, Ivy and they started Dance Hall Crashers as a sort of side ska project. So it was supposed to be more of a ska band then you know what was becoming rancid um and operation ivy was kind of a bit more punk but dancehall crashers was supposed to be a bit more of a trad ska kind of thing so they started the band but with you know a different group of people i think jason our guitar player was also in a band called downfall with uh tim armstrong which was a bit more punky and they they put some, uh, some some music out and then sort of at one point 
uh, Tim left and Matt left and whoever was still there, which was a guy called Joel Wing on bass, Eric Larson on drums, um, Ingrid uh, was one of the, was the other singer. Then Elise joined. Um, and then this lady Ingrid left and they were looking for another singer, which is when I came along. But, but in the meantime, but in the meantime, there were a lot of other band members that kind of came in and out. We had three horn players and we would have two horn players and we have a keyboard player that we didn't have a keyboard player. We had two guitar players. Jamie McCormick is a, is a brilliant guitar player is on much of our early recordings and he's a lovely guy that we're all still friends with. He was in the band. I think we've probably got the most rotating band members of any East Bay band at that time. It was ridiculous. It sounds like Kiss. <laughs> it was it was crazy. Somebody was going to do a family tree about of the just the dance hall crash or the East Bay punk scene because everybody was sort of going in and out. Of- do you know what though? I spoke to um I spoke to Chris from Less Than Jake about this, and apart from Less Than Jake. It seems like every 90s American ska band has had about a thousand members. Like none of them can stay together. I don't know what it is. Less than Jake kind of always been the same guys apart from Vinny more recently. Um, but that's it. That's the only change they've had in their lineup in nearly 30 years. Whereas every other ska band, it's like, who's with them this week? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. I guess that's the, the kind of the the territory you get into when there's like more than four members because it's hard enough keeping four people together right but when there's like seven eight then that's a nightmare absolutely and you know another reason that we eventually kind of dropped having you know the horns and we get a lot of shit for that but it's like you can't tour with nine band members you know not if you're not making any money yeah. And so we had two singers already. We had two guitar players. Like at that point, like we've so much, you know, harmony happening already and, you know, double guitar lines or, you know, back and forth vocals that do we really need three horns on top of that? It's like they're who not writing you... the songs. We're writing the songs anyway. It's like... Who gives you shit for not having horns? That seems like a strange thing to pick a hole in. Um, well, Name the <laughs> American, very much so. The American ska scene is very attached to three horns, and they sort of seem, or at least two, they seem to think that you're not a ska band, right? If you don't have that, they're purists. Which, ska purists is what they're they are. Purists, but you know, it's like, but it's not pure ska. It's third wave. <laughs> well, the whole thing is ridiculous because yeah, right. You, know, you also get, you know, at that time there was a window of time then that if you signed to a major label, you were getting called a sellout. Mm. However, all of our favorite ska bands and, you know, the specials and madness, they were all, you know, maybe they only had one horn player or they were on major labels or et cetera, et cetera. So the whole thing was ridiculous. It was sort of like this American, I don't know, way of feeling like they were holding on to something. It's like, well, why don't you care about something that matters like racism or something like that? Yeah. Social issues. Yeah. Instead of like whether or not, you know. It's like there's a reason you get to hear this this album is because it was released on a you know an actual distributing you know label that which in the early 90s that was just before cds kind of started to take off and you could make your own cds more easily and and uh independent labels were able to kind of push that uh music out there you know it was it was still hard to get distri- you know distribution anywhere so you know major labels or major distribution was a big deal it's great great thing to have and from a uk perspective and i feel really bad so i'm just going to come clean and i'm gonna i'm gonna be honest 
the dance hall crashes were not especially known over here and still aren't really like um one thing i like to do in the lead up to any of these conversations is go through the guest's body of work and try and like absorb and consume as much of it as possible before the conversation and i always that's one of my favorite parts of the process and I went in on the whole dance or crashes back catalog and was like, I don't really know any of this stuff. And I've been DJing at Scar festivals and shows for years and years and years. And I thought I had pretty much everything on lock. Um, and so I guess the first thing is like, do you feel like the band broke up before you were able to make waves over here? Or was it just that you weren't one of those bands that had perhaps say like a game soundtrack song placement? Because, you know, the only like real, um, real big fish, Goldfinger, Less Than Jake, all massive over here. But even like a Boss Tones, not so big in the UK. Um, obviously, impression that I get, everybody sort of knows that song. But beyond that, in the UK, everybody's a bit like, mm, Boss Tones, not really sure. So there's certain, and certainly bands like Hepcat, you know, again, didn't, didn't make it over here. Like, so there's only a few, but um, I don't really know where I'm going with this, Karina. I guess I was trying to say, that I've recently well, discovered your music and I, yeah. I love it. And I'm grateful that I now have it in my life and can spin it in my DJ sets. But um, yeah, I feel like I've been missing out for a long time. Well, I think there's quite a few things, you know, like the kinds of labels that you were on as a band, like whether or not you got good distribution and good promotion in Europe was was kind of random. So we, we were on a label that was called um, Moonscar initially from Chicago, which was the Toasters label. And they did a fair amount of distribution and, you know, in the States and, and were locked into the ska scene. So there was kind of some following, you know, and in the States, then we signed to a label called 510, um, which was an East Bay label run by Green Day's managers. And they started this label 510 that was attached to um, a subsidiary kind of essentially or a partnership with MCA. So, so, so even though we were kind of attached to them, feeling like we were on kind of an independent, um, they were distributed and working with MCA. Now, MCA is a shit label when it came to, you know, we were on Universal internationally, but we didn't have the same sort of, uh, you know, promotion and, and that kind of stuff in Europe as we, as some other bands did. Now, Less Than Jake, um, you know, real big fish, people like that in the nineties, they got, they got a lot of kind of, uh, push not only in, in Europe, but, but on radio play here. And it was just a different, they really kind of were able to pick that up and take that into a certain place. But, you know, so, so that, that's part of the reason that certain bands did well in Europe or not, if you get, you'd get better distribution or not. I mean, we played the, Reading Festival, we played European Warp Tour, Kerrang wrote about us. We had we had some some good stuff going on in, in the UK and, and in Europe, but it was not as big and we didn't do crazy tours like, you know, Less Than Jake and those guys, they tour for like two months at a time. I mean, yeah. we were just, we would do three weeks and come back and we, we didn't do like these 12 week tours and stuff like that. So there, there was a few reasons, you know. We were yeah. huge, huge, but we were together for 18 years. So it wasn't just that we didn't spend the time to do it. We we were together for a long time. We were together way before Less Than Jake and Real Big Fish were ever bands, you know. Mm. So before Hepcat was a band, we, we, we started right before Hepcat even became a band. So 
we have the history, but we just also went our own path a little bit. We also didn't play all the big super duper trad ska kind of third wave, you know, festivals. We we were conscious about keeping our music a little bit out of getting pigeonholed into that third wave ska thing too much. Is that because you felt like it was going to be a flash in the pan, which in some ways it obviously was? Yeah, but some ways it wasn't apparently. But yeah, no, we did. We did. We were concerned about that. You know, and and we didn't. And that's those are the kinds of kids that were. um, You know, concerned about the sellout issues and all and that you weren't a real ska band if you didn't have three horn players and all that kind of stuff. We were playing with no effects a lot. We toured with Bad Religion. I mean, we toured with the Boston's and Bouncing Souls and H2O early on and Hepcat and Chris Murray when he was in King Apparatus. And so we had a big ska kind of, uh, you know, scene, but we, but we also were associating and playing with on Warp Tour with, you know, like I said, no effects and other bands. So we we kind of wanted to be able to to, you know, promote ourselves or be be ourselves in in kind of the punk scene as well like definitely we're pop punk we're not hardcore of course but but with two guitars and no horns we felt like we fit into the skater punk scene snowboard skater punk scene that was californian specific quite well and that was where we you know we had a lot of friends in that scene so i mean you know blink and no doubt, AFI, all those bands open for us. So. <laughs> some, I mean, there's some amazing songs. There's some amazing songs, and like the two kind of dual lead vocal attack is really exciting, and and I think distinct from a lot of the stuff that was happening at that point in time. I wish I could have seen you live back in in that era, because um, I bet you had a very high energy, kind of high impact, you know, exciting, fun live show. Yeah, that's what we were known for. That's that's kind of our thing. I don't think our records ever really captured that at all. It was it was all about the live show. Yeah. So I mean, we have you know we have a live uh, DVD out that has you can see a little bit of that, but I think that's really where we sh- you know we shined was our live our live shows were exciting and fun and really just a lot of high energy. I was running around like a mad woman. <laughs> can't do that anymore <laughs> are you still you still give it a good go i've seen you do your thing a little bit so do you um do you have fond memories of the scene back then uh i don't want to linger too long on this if you don't want to but um you know i feel like the more things have kind of come to light in recent years it seems like it wasn't always the um the best of places to inhabit as, as a woman the music industry um did you have negative experiences that did deter you from wanting to like keep the band together and stay in it or was for the large part your experience of the music industry fairly positive with the bands you would come into contact with and you know the kind of touring crews you'd be around and all of that stuff for the most part um as two women in a band um with you know mostly men that we were touring with we had very positive experiences the bands are not were not generally the issue. I know that's been a, a thing lately for a couple of people um, that have talked about some difficult situations and terrible situations. But, um, you know, I've always been pretty bold and very aware of my kind of surroundings. And 
the same with Elise, the other singer, and she also was our manager. So we're pretty, pretty tough ladies and we're not going to be fucked with. And we would not put ourselves in situations that were concerning. I mean, I'm not saying that I'm not saying that somebody, sh you know, should be f at fault for that. But I'm just saying, as far as my experience, I was always very aware of that and kind of had my fists up, you know, ready for any issues. So that in that way, we had lots of very positive experiences with all the bands that we toured with. That wasn't an issue ever. Um, you know, did we see some stuff a couple times that were really concerning? Um, I have a few experiences that of things that I saw that were really worrying to me, um, but they were like by security guards or by, um, you know, the, a lot of sexism, you know, with, you know, kind of the people that were essentially kind of gatekeepers, you know, like promoters and fans even, and um, although they're not really gatekeepers, but, you know, there was, there was a lot of, you know, we, we toured with Bad Religion, for example, and that was really difficult because we would get certain certain cities for example we played in italy one time with actually no effects and buzzcocks were on that bill and we just had so many things thrown at us that batteries bottles mud uh being women in a kind of male dominated scene was definitely difficult and i did write a lot of songs that were kind of feminist based you know lyrically because I felt like I had to fight for my rights and fight for my place all the time. So sorry, but it's okay. Um, I did feel like I had to fight for my place all the time, but at the same time, we didn't get any like sexual harassment that was, you know, from any band members that we were touring with or anything like that. You know, the label would suggest really ridiculous things. I can only um, imagine the A and R vision. Yeah, the A and R vision is just ridiculous, <laughs> and, 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 and certain highly... publicist suggestions for photo shoots and things like that. Exactly, highly yeah. offensive. Yeah, and I was, I was in a band, a different band, with which was all women, and that got it even worse. So because there was two women, because Elise was the manager, because both of us are pretty hardcore and can be uh, really strong women, um, and we gave off that vibe, and we kind of told people to fuck off that suggested these kinds of things to us we were okay but it was you know it was a struggle it was a battle absolutely 100 percent. it's not that way anymore i don't think people are much more open to women being in bands it's not like a, oh you're the chick in the band you know there's not this novelty aspect that was so prevalent and frustrating um but yeah, we didn't get we didn't get too harassed by you know anybody from anybody that we were touring with. Some of the stories that are coming out are just horrifying and yeah, yeah. sad. Yeah, it's a bum out. Were you were you close with Gwen back in those times? Were you friends with her? And was her career trajectory something you kind of saw from a, from a close vantage point? And obviously, I mean. What an amazing career and, and life she, she's made for herself and obviously super talented and that's where that comes from. But even if just no doubt it had kind of been all that she did, you'd still be like, wow, killed it, incredible. But then to go on and be like this kind of pop diva, R&B, hip hop sort of <laughs> phenomenon as well um, is pretty amazing, isn't it? 
Yeah. Um, Elise, the other singer for Dancehall Crashers, Elise Rogers, was um, grew up in Anaheim, so knew those guys very well because they're from Anaheim, from Orange County. So she was quite close with them. So we we played with them a lot. We toured with them a little bit, played a lot of shows with them. And Gwen is a sweetheart. You know, I haven't seen her in person um, or talked to her in person for years, but at that time, she really was a total sweetheart. And um, always was it was it evident that she was kind of a star absolutely. even early on? Absolutely. Like the first time I saw her, you you cannot take your eyes off when she's performing you were just like absolutely floored she she you know obviously she would run across run around across the stage but just stunningly gorgeous uh such a physical beautiful presence um on stage and off like off stage too you just gotta take your eyes off her but but um you know she just incredible style incredible creativity you know she was studied art for a little while and this is like always making her own clothes, absolutely, like, from day one, um, doing, you know, amazing hairdos and just into into the art of it and the creative aspect of it. And it was not surprising at all. You always knew she was going to be a star. No question. And then we played um, a few. We did a fun, it was a funny series of about a year where they got signed to Interscope. We got signed and we were sort of like, our career was starting to do better and we ran into them on tour and they were playing this shitty little bar and they were really pissed off that their label was just letting them down. They're like, this sucks. And we were playing this really big venue comparatively. And I was still just kind of shocked, you know, like she's going to be huge. Like, how is this, how is this happening? And then about six months later, we played a show with them in the Petaluma, which is Northern California. And I'm just a girl was just starting to get on the radio and they had this crazy group of girls following them and this, and this, you know, scene starting to happen and she, they were taking off and it was like, they finally got what they needed from the label and from the sort of get, getting that song on the radio and K-Rock, which was a big deal. And they were just starting to take off and it was like, oh yeah, here they go. Yeah. What a tune as well. What an amazing song that is. Um, on the flip side of that, a far more tragic outcome. Um, Bradley and Sublime, were you, were you close with those guys? Were you around them a lot? And and what a tragic waste of talent that was because, you know, what a phenomenal mm-hmm. songwriter and artist he was too. Very different um, style, of course. But yeah, yeah what a waste. What a, what a sad loss. Yeah, we played with them a lot. Also, actually, the three bands, no doubt, and Sublime and Dancehall Crashers did quite a number of shows together. Um, That that would be the bill, the three of you. Yeah. Wow. There were quite a few of those. Um, Magic. Magic times. Yeah. Yeah. It was was incredible. Um, And yeah, we were close with them. You know, they're a kind of a challenging group of (laughs) hoodlums. Let's I've say. toured. I've toured with Sublime with Rome, and um, what's the bassist called? Is it Eric? I can't remember. I haven't been. I can't, is it the same? Is it the same bass player? It's uh, the same bassist. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's a wild man still. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. They they were always like that. Um, which, you know, was just not our scene. Uh, in that respect. Um. So, but they were insanely talented and that's, they were on MCA. So that was another interesting thing because 
I remember that MCA was like, there's no single on this album. This is the kind of shit we were dealing with, right? So um, they put the, the record out. The label was about to shelve it 100%. And they were shelving it because they said there was no, not one single on that album. And then Bradley died. And then they went, let's push everything we can. And of course, it was huge. So it just kind of goes to show you a little bit about what that sort of support or, you know, was or wasn't and how it worked. But Bradley was insanely talented. I mean, he was just phenomenal. It just his voice alone is like incredible. Um, musicianship. Yeah. We did a lot with them for years. I've heard live they could either be the best band you've ever seen or like the absolute worst as well, depending on the uh the drug depending on how, much, how much drugs, yeah, how many drugs <laughs> on the so night. Yeah. And it's you know, and they obviously the thing that is often sort of overlooked, I guess especially over here because we don't know the full kind of history and backstory but they did only get massive after he passed away as you sort of alluded to there so he never got to yeah. see any of the success of of the band either did he not really i mean we were doing pretty good shows i mean we probably had you know a thousand twelve hundred fifteen hundred seaters before he passed so we were doing pretty well and we did a lot of festivals together there were a lot of you know long beach the long beach festival that, all kinds of things that warp tour or things like that that were big crowds. So he did get some success, but not to the level that that record just, you know, had hit after hit and became this kind of legendary, incredible, you know, piece of art and music that that so many people associate with and so many people adored. And he never got to see that. It is wild as well, because even to this day, you can walk into like any shop, store, bar in L.A. And it's just sublime on loop still. It's like it's in the yeah. air over there, isn't it? You just you step around any street corner or get in any car and it's just like, love you. And what I got is just like it's yeah. the, the anthem of the West Coast. Yeah. Of one of one of a few staples. But yeah, it's still so beloved, that music, isn't it? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. powerful stuff powerful stuff yeah. so are you still friends with elise are you guys still tight yeah. are you close you're on good terms it's all it's all positive totally good terms everything's fine we all live in different cities pretty much so it's part of the 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 challenges well there's a there's a we don't really want to be doing it anymore for own everybody has their own individual reasons i think some people would be fine to do it still um other people don't really want to do it, but um, everybody's on good terms. We have a text, group text and group emails going and send oh. funny back and forth. It's totally mm -hmm. fine. Yeah, Love it. It was just time. It was time. We were together for 18. I was in the band for 18 years. I, I mean, I thought I was going to be maybe be in about six months because I had plans to move back to Europe and I didn't. And I was like, oh, look, 18 years just flown by. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Does your, is your mom still with us? Is she still alive? Yes, she is. She is. Is she still living in America or did she return to Czech Republic or where she's still in the States as well? Is she? Yeah, we, we, we moved here and uh, my mom and my, myself are still in the States and the rest of my family's you know, either in England or in France or in the Czech Republic. So, Did your parents approve of your uh, burgeoning rock and roll career? Did they watch they with pride and encouragement being the kind do. of, you know, arty, rebel, <laughs> rebel loving kind of <laughs> wild cards that they are? They were, all, they were all about it, were they? They were behind you. Absolutely, yeah. They never, they never um, limited me and were always very encouraging. And... So I'm very fortunate to have had that absolutely. And my mom's my whole my mom's whole side of the family are musicians. So in the Czech Republic. So my aunt's a singer, my uncle's a trombone player, and um a lot of artists and you know, theater. My grandfather was an actor and a play director and a radio director. And so the kind of performing arts on that side of the family is very strong. Um and then on my dad's side not as much but a little bit too so so they were all very encouraging of that yeah love it have you connected much with eugene from goggle bordello over the years no i reckon you two would get on like a house on fire because he comes from a very similar background of academia and bohemia and you know obviously he's from the ukraine not czech so slightly different part of, of eastern europe but very similar stories of kind of these intellectual bohemian upbringings and then you know obviously immigrating to america and falling into punk and yeah i think you two would get on really well Mm. very similar stories we've rarely crossed paths like it's been a couple of times that we've been on shows but not not that much so you should grab him and say hello next time you you're in the same orbit and yeah i think you definitely hit it off so when how obviously you say you're playing shows back in the day with no effects uh, were they always people that you were sort of close with, buddy with, or is it, you know, more kind of just like, hey, hello, fairly limited exchange. And then when do you get the offer to start, I guess, the records first, working on stuff with Mike? Um, how does all that timeline pan out? So we um, we toured with them, at, you know, when I was in dance hall, we did a lot of, we, we did warp Tour in Europe, we did um just some touring opening for them etc cetera, etc cetera. but then um dancehall crashers ended up being on on fat records so his record label under um the pink and black mon- moniker which was um 
as sort of part of the Fat Records labels, you know, series at that point, um, kind of mostly for female acts um, or female fronted acts. And so we went on to Pink and Black. We also released our old album on Honest Dawns. And I live in San Francisco. Most of us are pretty much Bay Area centric, um, except for Elise lives in, a, you know, was in L.A., back in L.A. But so I would party with them all the time. And right. Of course. That's how it works. <laughs> so, you know, there were a lot of, yeah, Fat Records was down the street and we would um, spend, you'd go to a lot of shows together, spend a lot of time with Mike and with Aaron. Um, was Spike so loads of fun when he was drinking? Oh, my God. He's still loads of fun. He doesn't actually yeah. need alcohol to be loads of fun. So, yeah. He's, so a, he's a wonderful of- man, but I bet he uh, I bet he was a fun one to be around in those days. Yeah, absolutely. Lots of karaoke fun parties. <laughs> and, yeah. So me and him would be leading the karaoke. Yeah. Amazing. And, um, and all the Fat Records um, staff and crew I'm still really good friends with in San Francisco. We just had a big re- reunion and that was really fun. We'll get to them, the, the recent shows. Yep. Yeah. Can't wait to hear um, about them. And, you know, Tony Sly, No Use for a Name. We toured with them a lot. Um, no effects. Did. I mean, um, sorry, uh, Dancehall Crashers did. So they were kind of hanging out a lot because some of them lived, you know, they were li- living in California, Northern California, and Slagwagon, et cetera, et cetera. So everybody was, you know, either between somewhere between, you know, San Francisco and L.A., what either in San Jose and lots of hanging out and partying. So we were good friends, and they put out our, our um, albums, uh, Dancehall Crasher albums, Again, then, what a golden time, you know, fat's yeah. taking off, CD sales are flying, all those punk bands are getting signed up. Just yeah. were good. another magical yeah. golden era. It really was because, you know, we got to take, we all got to take kind of control back of our own music in, um, in a really positive way and have that, you know, that time that we could create our own thing, either through fat records or other people had their own way of doing it. But um through smaller labels and side one dummy we released stuff there was all kinds of you know epitaph there were a lot of people putting out great things so it was a magical time actually i think you know in retrospect we didn't we didn't know that at the time but it was it was a good scene and so i spent a lot of time with them i became close to to all those guys um and then uh you know mike had his recording studio here in san francisco motor studios and he was doing i recorded on a bunch of their albums like as a guest and i would always guest on kind of a lot of fat records people so no use for a name tony Sly's solo albums um high standard limp the real mckenzie's you know spikes record like i did a lot of like there's a lot of guest spots that i i kind of added little bits and was asked to do invited to do i dj'd a wedding over the weekend and a couple requested their last dance song so they had the first dance and then the last dance song was the high standard cover of can't help falling in love with you which was oh, fun a fun way to end it and i just saw god what's the guy's name from real mckenzie's paul okay what a character that man is i actually did one of these with him but i couldn't put it out because it was just like rambling nonsense it was kind of amazing <laughs> but he basically just it was uh, it was on zoom but he had it on his phone and he was just like, it was just a one man kind of show. Um, and I was like, it was really entertaining for me. But I was like, I don't think this is going to make sense as a podcast. So I didn't get to air it in the end. But I love him. And what a, what a force of nature he is. Yeah, that's a nice way of putting it. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's brilliant. It's fun. Um, yeah, he's but a then, berserker. 
Yes, that's and fair. sober and sober. I imagine he wasn't always that way, but like, yeah. Hmm. Um, yeah, and then Mike was, you know, started working on the musical that he was writing, Home Street Home, um, among other kinds of projects here and there that he was doing. But Home Street Home, I was one of the main people that was coming in and, you know, helping him demo and write these songs. So he was writing them, but he would ask me to play different female characters vocally singing, singing these parts. Is that you that's on a lot of the songs from that that are out then? Well, the early series I did, and then a lot of actors redid my parts. So my reflections, my ideas. I've heard, I've heard the, the, the versions you're on then, I think. Um, and that, that, that material for me is some of the best, absolute best stuff Mike's ever written. Um, yeah, and, and you, you do a fantastic job as well. And just the whole thing. What's the I'm suicide? What's that song? Oh yeah, that's hardcore. One. See, a lot of these songs have changed so many times, so I don't even know which version you had been listening to. But that's what was happening: is he was demoing them. They would, you know, they were writing the musical. It would change. They'd get a different producer, maybe, or they would kind of change the storyline a little bit. That's what you do when you're writing something like that, right? So I was coming in and changing parts and changing characters. Okay, now do, you know, do this, this same character, but let's make her from Brooklyn and let's make her like, you know, so I would sort of, and working with Mike is very specific. Like he's incredibly detailed and he'll sort of be like, okay, sing. And you're like, do you mean sing? Da, 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 da. And he'd be like, yeah, yeah, that. So like, you have to kind of like try to guess what he said. So I was doing a lot of that for him. And then he'll change like, no, change the third note. Da, 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 da. Okay, change it to this. Da, 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 da. You know, like he's very, very detailed. So do you grow super my... close as as people in that process and bond kind of in a very special and in, intimate way? Because it, I've spoken to you about this before. He speaks very highly of you and he, I can tell that he yeah. admires and respects you greatly. And working on someone like that in a situation like that um, must be a very special intimate experience because of the nature of the material as well and how raw and intense some of it is but creative and fun as well it's quite a heady mix of stuff going on yeah. isn't it very dark it's very kind of intense uh, material yeah i guess so i mean i think we had just had a really good rapport always i you know obviously he's absolutely hilarious and i think he's really funny um so I don't know if everyone does, but I think he's particularly hilarious. So we have a we have a lot of laughs. Um, I do think we became very close. I think um, knowing each other that long for that many years and seeing all the stuff that we've both kind of gone through, you know, um, divorces and blah, 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 difficult times, good times, really hard times. I think you do become really close. Um, and uh, just you know, we, we've always been very good friends kind of throughout this process, but I think that was an, a window of time that we got closer again as, as good friends. And that's how I ended up in no effects was the kind of long story short is that when Limo was leaving, he, he left the band and I'm good friends with Limo, who was who the keyboard player for years. Um, Limo also toured with Dancehall Crashers. He was one of our techs for a little while and so is Jay Walker and so is Kent so like I'm you know was very involved with all of them and and the scene we're all good friends so once um Limo was leaving 
no effects. Um, Mike just like called me up kind of in the middle of the night, actually. He was like, oh my God, you should join. You should be our keyboard player because I had been working with him on the musical. So sometimes I'd be like, no, 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 it's this chord you want to play, isn't it? This chord or this chord. And he's seen my band around town because I, I write my originals and he would come see off my bands. So he knew that I had these other abilities, you know, like let's kind of sing it jazzy. Let's sing it this way. Let's kind of do your jazzy blues thing that you do. And you know, all that kind of thing. And I'd already sang on a bunch of the albums on Mattersville. I'm an alcoholic, all these like, you know, other, other no effects songs, but also uh, fat records songs. So that's kind of how it ended up. He's like, Can I just buddy. say as well, you absolutely elevate the, the Frank Turner split. Um, I think that's some of the best no effects stuff in years. Ironically, it's not, you know, Mike's compositions, but because for me, you and Hefe are both so talented and great and so underused uh, in more recent years. Um, but that record, I got to hear both of you really do your thing and be front and center. And yeah, I think they're some of my favorite no effects recordings ever, those Frank Turner covers, and you're brilliant on them. Thank you so much. There really is no God. That one is just <laughs> so, so good. I know. I think that was the one that Mike's like, just go for it. Like, sing your thing that you know, just make it really bluesy. And I was like, well, this is kind of almost like pushing it to like cheesy, you know, soul singer. You really want that? And he's like, go all the way. He really wanted me to just go for it. I was like, okay, I can do those licks if you want me to do it. I'll do it. No, <laughs> it's like, it's not awesome. really what you normally want. You really want usually a punk kind of voice. So, anyway, that's how I ended up in the band. Well, kind cheers of- to that. Cheers. Have a cup of tea. Yeah, water. Just water at the moment. Um, so what era um two thousand sixteen is when you start touring mm-hmm. with them. So what's going on around that time? Is that like that first ditch effort or is that before then? No, it was way after that. Way after. Oh no, but first ditch effort. Sorry, I thought you said I thought you said um sorry, something else. Um it is first ditch effort. So I, I was on that album. Mm-hmm. And is so the tour think, is the touring side of things? 2017, I think first ditch effort. Did it come out in 2017, or did it come out in 2016? And then I had recorded but hadn't started touring with them. I think it was 2017 that it came out. But it's around that time. Yeah. And and what's the mood in the camp around then when you join? <laughs> Where where's no effects at then? <laughs> what you can I, tell me. I mean, I have a bad memory of things sometimes, but I I feel like it was still really positive. It's not super negative now. I think that, um, yeah, things were going great. I mean, Kent was doing it. Kent took a break, uh, probably two thousand eighteen. To can't remember exactly what years, but there was a couple of of years that he wasn't touring with us. But at that point, everybody was doing great and getting along great um i think they had just taken a little time from touring like a little mini break you know sometimes they would they did that over the many over the 40 years they've been together yeah yeah they would take like six months off or do do kind of a slow year just to give themselves a break that kind of thing um 60 percent isn't it (laughs) yeah that's right (laughs) it's funny why why overdo it It's funny how true that song really is. <laughs> <laughs> it's brilliant. It's but so on the money. And why so, not? And why know, not? So I love it. So when just sort of jumping around real quickly, yeah. but um, in Austria, I thought that show was so good. 
And everyone was like, oh, you know, complaining because Mike didn't sing. And it's like, well, there's two options in a situation like that. Either they cancel and let everybody down or they just do what no effects do and just go, well, let's just give them what we what no effects do. Which is no effects show. Uh, yeah. Mel- Melvin stepped up and I thought that was one of my favorite no effects shows I've ever seen because it was different. Watching Mike liberated from vocal duties, freed him up as a performer and he's running around like a madman. It was just it was a really special, fun show. But I find it funny because we live in this different time now with social media and, and like online criticism, the negative stuff rises to the top always. But it's so funny to me that a fan of no effects would criticize no effects for being no effects and doing, doing exactly what the, it's like that you can't open your set with a song like 60% and be like, this is our mission statement. This is how we roll. I'm not here to entertain you, et cetera, et cetera. And then they go, oh, those, those guys don't give a shit. And it's like, well, they've kind of been saying they don't give a shit all along. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Newsflash, listen to the fucking lyrics, dum-dum. I know. <laughs> I know, it's, it's. I agree. I absolutely agree. That whole thing was, you know, Mike was really on the fence about playing some of those shows that we did on that trip when he lost his voice. He really didn't want to do a couple of shows. And we all talked him into it. Um because we were like, what are we going to do? Not play? And all these people, you know, people had flown from Brazil and Australia. Like, what are we going to just not play at all? Like, you have three or four singers in the band that can cover. You know, it's not going to be perfect. It's going to be sloppy. I mean, let's, it's ne- it's never perfect. Let's be honest. Yeah, let's be real. <laughs> perfection gonna, is not what we want. And I mean, to the point where, like, they were like, Karina, you go sing Champs-Élysées. And I was like, what are you talking about? It's in French. I only know like part of the verse. I don't know the whole song because I don't usually sing the whole song. And they're like, just go out and sing it. And I was like, what are you talking? And literally on stage, they're like, just do it. And I was like, what? It's in French. Like if it was in English, I wouldn't be able to. It's like, I know part of it, but I don't know the whole song. Um, And when I saw you it was ridiculous so i just handed this you know the mic out to the audience like right you're a bunch of frenchies here somebody someone's gonna someone speaks french here because we're in austria uh i'll just do the parts i know no so you know that's part of no effects is it's like it is 60 percent. there is an element of like things are always very unpredictable and what i love about them is that every single show and i noticed this when dancehall crashers toured with them their comedy is different every night. It's it not is. repeated. It's it not is. repeated. There's no script. And that's why sometimes, um, again, we won't go too much into this, but sometimes a joke will perhaps push the boundaries of, of taste and decency, but it's because perhaps. it's not preordained. And it just, in the moment, sometimes we say stuff and then we go, I mean, they probably didn't think, oh, that was a bit much, but then all it takes is one person to go, that was too much for me. And it becomes this, but it's in situations like that for better or worse that you really realize that, oh, these guys aren't reading off a script. This is just off the cuff in the moment. Anything can happen. Yeah. And it's constant comedy backstage on the bus anyway. So it's like they're, they're, con- they're, you know, they're flexing that muscle all the time so that when they're on stage, it comes back out, you know, as a performer. But um, yeah, so you know, back to the Austrian show, that was, that was a rough night for all of us. I, me and Hefe also were really sick. I don't know if you remember this, but I, I talked remember, to you yeah. after the show and I think you said hi to me before. And I was like, like, just not like responsive because I got really sick. So my, Mike had lost his voice. Melvin 
had already covered for him for like one or two days. So he was starting to lose his voice because he was just kind of trying to keep it together. And then Hefe and I went to the doctor that morning, both had like some crazy throat infection that was like, like we had gotten something from somebody like some kind of strep throat or something. So we both were on hardcore antibiotics that morning <laughs> and we were trying to keep it together. We're like, what's going on? Like we're all getting sick. So whatever Mike had had probably gave it to us. Um, so, so yeah, we were all really sick, like different, whatever. And I wasn't COVID, but we were all just like, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, what were we going to do? Not play the show. I mean, you know, the show must go on. They say that for a reason you have to, you have to give the, the people that are there something right try i absolutely loved it i thought you were all fantastic and and really rose to the occasion and i think what's funny and uh i'm not throwing any other bands under the bus here but it was really interesting to me the next day without mentioning names because the festival continued for two days after no effects had had gone on right and all these other bands are coming in and they're getting wind like oh mike didn't sing last night it was a really shit show and, and they're just seeing what was on the internet right and i'm like no it was a fucking awesome show it was a no effects show and it was just to me it was interesting that and i could see the bands were like oh how do no effects get away with that shit and it's like i i can see and sometimes often it comes from a good place but you can see that other bands get envious and jealous of the fact that no effects can phone it in and people still go it's fucking awesome because they're like if we did that everybody would just say we're shit and it's like yeah but you know you ain't no effects dude (laughs) because they've set that stall up since day one that's right they set it up. They also, because they don't take themselves too seriously overall, and it is, yeah, exactly. They've set it up. They've, you know, they've given you the information that <laughs> you can either take it in and know that's what you you might get one of those kind of shows or not. Um, but you know, everyone tries really hard, and everyone's a great musician. It's just, it's just, and and it's just unpredictable anyway. I mean, you don't know what you're going to get when you get on stage. It's it's like, I can feel like really good, really like I got enough sleep. I'm all like juiced. I'm like not hungover or whatever. I feel like, yes, let's do this. I feel strong. And you get on stage and you just have a shit show. And then you, another time you'll feel like I didn't get any sleep. I've been, you know, I feel like crap. It's been like three days of no good, you know, no sleep and I feel like shit. And you go on stage and you have a great show. It doesn't, you don't really know. In that situation, obviously Mike was was really ill and but we all were and we just all kind of tried to pull it together it was it was a rough it was a rough night for everybody as far as how we felt but you know you had to do what you had to do i think that playing is better than canceling 100 percent. and on the flip yeah. side of that the three nights in barcelona was absolute <laughs> magic every night um and Absolutely. i was so grateful to be out there for all of that and just like the amount of photos that I got over those three nights uh, and, and in Austria as well. I've got like, I had 1800 altogether from those four shows, which I whittled down to like 300, just solid gold, incredible photos. Um, and I, even at that point was like, none of these even are really like worth deleting because they're all so good. And there's so many. Um, and those three nights in Barcelona, they felt like there was real magic in the air that night, especially the first and the last night. Um, but Agreed. all of them were just like amazing. Agreed. They were so fantastic. I mean, our joke after that 
series was like, let's only play first shows and third shows and not ever play second <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, it's hard, isn't it? Because you come in with that first night energy and then you've got the yeah. last night energy and it really is just the sandwich filling in the middle of the second show, isn't it? It's like, what can you do with that show apart from like try and keep the energy of the first going? But uh, it's a tough one because when you do two shows, the second night's never like worse than the first, but that three in a row is kind of a weird. Yeah. It was so basically yeah. if you're going to any of these shows and there's three in a row, pick night one or three, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> well, also because we were doing different albums each night, you know, yes. that's what makes it really hard. And I think the second night, it just depends on the set list. We're doing different set lists, even if we do, you know, obviously the, some of the same albums. Yeah. We're doing separate, different set lists every night. Every night that we're playing on this final tour is different in one yeah. way you know it'll be different some different songs some songs deleted some songs added from different albums and just as musicians to be able to be in a position to play all of these different variations of so many songs proves how good all of the band is um, everybody's a badass everybody in the band is a badass you know we may or may not have a perfect show of um actual playing but <laughs> but there'll be some really good jokes there so <laughs> <laughs> And I think with that second Barcelona show, there was quite a few somber songs, which I loved and I liked those moments. But I think that was what maybe sucked some of the energy down a bit is there was a lot of like the mic and the kind of, you know, so I don't know whether he plays acoustic guitar, but just like him and a guitar, you know, that whoops, I OD'd and songs like that that are very much kind of like, you know, downbeat. Um, yeah. So that obviously affects it. And weirdly, you touched on something a moment ago. I tour a lot and DJ between bands when I go out on the road and I notice during the changeovers, a lot of the kind of energy in the rooms and, and, and how that can differ. And sometimes you can roll into a town and put on a better show than you put on in the previous city, but the crowd's just not with you. Yeah. Because half of it is them, like at least. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, some nights I've seen bands go out and just lay their fucking heart on the line and leave everything on stage and the crowd's just like unfazed. And you're like, what the fuck happened there? And you just never 100%. know. 100%. 100%. And I think maybe even in Barcelona, there was a little bit of that because some people came in for the three shows. They went crazy for the first show. They were yeah, hungover yeah, yeah, and yeah, tired yeah. for the second show. And then they third show, they were like, yes, it's the last. Pull it back. Yeah. Yeah. But, but you know, as a, absolutely as a performer, you know, especially, you know, I sing lead in, in most of the other groups I'm in, obviously. I'm in quite a few bands. So, um, but, you know, I, I often come on stage, you know, thinking, okay, like you have to kind of feel the energy of the room. You know, you have to feel, you kind of get a sense of what, what the, the vibe is and how people are feeling, if they're too hot, if they're excited, if they're, you know, like where they are, you know, and, and you kind of have to read the room a little bit or the festival field or whatever. <laughs> and try to potentially transform that if you need to. But you can't always do it. And you don't, you know, like sometimes you do, sometimes you, you're able to go, oh, they feel a bit tired. Let's like bring it up. But other times you can't. And so you have, you, it, there is this kind of funny, that's why live performance is so interesting. It's not, you're not going to get the same thing, right? You, it's as a performer, it's a, a strange moment of feeling truly alive that you can't. That's, that's why I think everyone becomes drug addicts and alcoholics because you're constantly searching for that same high yep. that you get you know when you're on stage which is this very alert 
you know, heightened sense of, of reality. And if you, you know, if you can't change, if you can't turn around the room or the field, (laughs) wherever you are, it's frustrating. And maybe you finally get it, you do it and you can't, but I'm sure the same thing happens as a DJ. It's like, you've got a bunch of sort of strange dead feeling or energy in the room or whatever, not dead, but just low. You, you, sometimes you can turn it around and sometimes you really can't. I remember when I was a little bit earlier on in the kind of evolution of my career and I would go out and do sets between bands and the crowd would be lifeless. And I used to take it really personally, like I'd failed, but then I'd see the headline act go out and people had come to see them and they'd pay to see them. And they were still, you know, (laughs) like a piece of dead wood. And I was like, ah, some people are just bum out. Um, And you can't, it's so interesting everything you touch on there it fascinates me and it really is it's the stuff of life for me being up on stage i host a lot of live q and a's as well and that's a really raw form of energy manipulation and trying to like read the room and and gauge the energy levels and and work with it and it's the most fascinating element of of live entertainment for me and it's something that i think will never stop um capturing my imagination and my interest and, and my drive it's just and it, as you say there's never ever two shows that are exactly the same ever no it can be the same set it can be the same room you don't you just don't know what you're going to get and you know everything that you just mentioned you just you don't even city to city you know new yorkers are very different from san francisco audiences you know um you know who else whoever else is in the crowd you know on three different nights in barcelona like what like i said if they they were tired the second night too we were tired but they were also tired so th- there might be these kinds of you know same city or just different city vibes that are very transformative and and really change how how it feels and you can't you can't you can't be 100% you know I mean, I, you know, I messed up on something the other day in Florida that I've never messed up. It's like, how, <laughs> uh, you know, like, why would I mess up that one part? I've never messed that up. And that kind of stuff happens, you know, you're like, you know, you get the sort of look from somebody in the band, like, and you're like, I know the part. Why did I mess? I don't know why I fucked that up. I did it yeah. right the last like 300 times, but today I just didn't do it right. I don't know why that yes. happens. You know, you can't, you can't help it. I host monster truck shows and and that happens occasionally to me when doing them is you're so dialed in with the script and you're so rehearsed and the easiest thing that you've done a hundred times, you fuck up once and you're like, what, how? And they're sort of, they're on the comms on the ears. Like, how did you blow that? Like you're like straight out the gate, like the first thing or something. And you're like, oh man, it's so, I think because you've got so much in your head, sometimes like the tiniest thing can seep through the hole and then you're just like, oh yeah. And then, but but it reminds you like to be on your game. And it's Absolutely. a really cool, like awakening. And you're like, oh yeah, I can't take this shit for granted and think that I've got this all dialed in because stuff like that can happen and remind me that, you know, always pay attention. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yep. So how is San Francisco? Some of the footage and the photos I saw from that show just looked glorious. Obviously you alluded earlier on to the history of fat and, you know, so many of these bands and these personalities, San Francisco was home base for so much of it. Um, so there must have been so many friends and old familiar faces and yeah was it special was it incredible it was actually it felt like those barcelona shows that you were mentioning 
um, excuse me, <clears throat> it felt um, extremely special. It did, it did have, and the, you know, the backstage was ridiculous because <laughs> it like, you know, I mean, I had a million friends there myself. Um, well, that was the thing with Barcelona real quickly. Sorry, is there weren't guests there really, you know, there was obviously like the people that you have on stage. There always are at no effect shows, but I didn't notice there was like a ton of friends of the band and stuff at that one. Um, so to have, you know, all of the people who are on stage on a no effect show anyway, and then 200 or probably more close friends of the band and everybody wild. in it. <laughs> I mean, I think the no effects back, like backstage <clears throat> guest list was about 300 and 350, but that's not including every other band that had backstage artists. I mean, backstage passes for their guests or fat records which had its own guest list so we're talking about like i don't know maybe 600 people <laughs> i don't know 500 it was mad and <laughs> it was mad and uh the show itself it was i think about ten thousand people there um we got really good weather things that matter right uh because san francisco is very cold usually so that was it was uh so it was just a lovely evening it was really fun it was really epic. I think the set list was great. It was really good vibes and energy within the band. Everybody played well. We had a good show. We had a really good was show. Was it just the one night? Just the one yeah, night. Yeah, perfect. So yeah. in and out, job done. I mean, you wouldn't want two nights on the bounce with a crowd like that, would you? 600 guests. Like, no, no guests for night two. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we could do, you know, if we did three shows, I would say, you know, we'd have one show, show one and show three. But yeah. We wouldn't do this. We wouldn't do a second show. We would just do one. <laughs> and loads of guests on stage. I imagine was there a lot of guest oh, yeah. appearances. Crazy. Playing, playing, and stage. Yeah, the, the decline was ridiculous. Um, it was pretty funny in rehearsal. Um, you know, Mike turns to me and's like, "We're gonna have like you know ten guitar, you know ten or fifteen guitarists at the end of the decline come up, and Rugly, our guitar techs, like." excuse me what <laughs> don't tell her tell me what are you talking about it'd be good to tell me and uh, so me and mike are just kept continue joking about it. i'm like great i'm glad i know thanks for letting me know um i'll be on that <laughs> rugby's like hello <laughs> what so yeah we had a ridiculous amount of guests we had um yeah jack from the swinging utters and oh we had lo lots of people um it was really fun super fun and how is Florida? What's the no effects Florida relationship like? Well, a lot of people came from a lot of other places. <laughs> Florida, you know, Florida is its own special little sweaty state of hell. Florida um, gets a bad rap, doesn't it? And well, is it justifiably seen, so? Have you ever seen that that TV show Cops? No. Bad boys, bad boys, what you gonna do? <laughs> Basically, it's all about like cops busting people for, you know, I don't know, doing terrible things, of course, drug, lots of drug addicted, you know. Drug addicted just, crocodiles, things like this, roaming the streets. <laughs> but it's not, so, it's not supposedly shot in, in Florida, but basically 90% of the. Of I the mean, I, I guess the thing that comes to mind for me is the Tiger King. There you go. There you go. Um, no, I'm being really mean. Now everyone's going to hate me. I actually do personally love Florida, but. Um, it's it's quite a, it's funny it gets a bad rap in the states so um it was great it was a really fun show it was really hot and sweaty so we were all a bit like uh suffering 
Um, I got I got bug bites all over my ankles from like weird bugs that are gnats everywhere. But it was excellent show. Circle Jerks, Lesson Jake, um, tons of. It was just a really fun fun vibes, and a lot of good friends came out again because people flew from different places, people from Brazil, and a lot of a lot of friends on stage. A big fun decline uh, jam session at the end as well. Hell yeah. Um, yeah it was really fun so emotions obviously run high um has it been like that pretty much every night by the end like tears from mike and uh, hefe's been crying a lot in the ones that i've seen um melvin and smelly seem to keep it together a little bit more at this stage maybe that'll change as, as the shows get closer to that final one but i mean what's it like after the shows have finished um and there's just that absolute i guess void of energy and adrenaline and emotion because you've left it all up there um it must be like quite a a charged heightened special in its own way vibe every night when you come off stage together yeah i feel um i feel like the shows have been up and down when it comes to emotion i know that for myself you know those barcelona shows for example i i was getting really teary um and then certain cities will do that to me. I don't even feel like I, I, th- I got pretty teary, I think in San Francisco, Florida, I didn't. And it's not because it's Florida. It's not because it's Orlando. It's because part of it is just like, maybe that for me, I'm, since we're still playing, it doesn't really feel like the end. I can't really, sometimes I can take that in and really feel it. And other times it just is like, oh, it's just a show. So you know, you're still got all that kind of hyped energy and it doesn't feel like the end. So I kind of can't, can't quite believe it, you know? I guess you've only got a certain amount of bandwidth, right? To give. You can't be up there every night. Going, <laughs> you know, sometimes yeah. you got to hold a little back to get through your life. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, if we end with something like Kill All the White Man, it's like I don't really, I'm not going to start crying on that one because it's hilarious. So, mm. I mean, I'm just saying there's like, there's you you don't always get like certain songs maybe decline and and theme will sort of take you there a little bit more maybe that might be a thing too um backstage after the show i feel like we get spread out pretty far like people kind of like everybody's clamoring on to different band members to kind of want to talk to them and you know we all tend to have some friends or family there even if they're extended family or whatever that so you kind of end up getting a little bit drawn into that um you know or hanging out with your buddies or other band members so i don't feel like there's this collective moment where after the show we're all together we don't we don't tend to have that do you think you'll have that at the last one do you think you'll do it is it something that's been spoken about because i mean god knows how many guests will be at that one a thousand probably but that'll be a nightmare i don't think we're going to get that moment you know I don't yeah. think we'll have that. I mean, we have those moments when we're all, you know, in a van together that we all got picked up or in a bus together in Europe or something. And that's when we have those moments where there's no other fans or no other family or no other, you know, wives or husbands or boyfriends. And and we have kind of, you know, it's just the, it's just the small group. And then we kind of get more connected. I would say that's the time, you know, we go out, get some food together somewhere, you know, that kind of thing. We don't have we don't tend to have that at shows it's just too crazy yeah well they're the yeah. beautiful moments really aren't they um they, they define 
I think the whole story is those little moments, the downbeats. That's when those real connective memories, I think, are forged. And when you look back on it, you'll be like, oh, you know, it's 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 like when a relationship comes to an end, right? It's for me. When I walk around supermarkets, I always think about my ex because I used to really enjoy just going around and food shopping with her because it was such a simple, like wholesome thing that I just it brought me a lot of joy. And whenever now I'm in the supermarket in Camden near where she used to live, and we broke up six years ago, this is ages ago. I walk around there sometimes because I DJ at a bar opposite it a lot, and I'll be like, "Oh man, I get all like emotional." And it's like, "What? I'm in a supermarket. Don't break down now." <laughs> in the frozen <laughs> section, like. <laughs> frozen peas (laughs) fish fingers got to get a grip matt you got to get a grip um so here's a little uh bit of news i will be in australia for all of those shows hopefully i mean i'm going to be there at that point i'm going to try and make it to as many many of them as possible i've actually pitched to kent to try and get on the shows doing some, some djing between bands so we'll see if that comes off but either way i will endeavor to be there because i'm going to uh do a tour in november i was going to stay on a few weeks after that tour and then come home for christmas but then i saw that no effects were announcing those shows in january i was like fuck it i'm going to stay in australia for three months and i'm booking a bunch of q a and dj gigs in the lead up to, to when you guys come over to sort of tide me over and yeah i'm just going to write three months three months i've just moved out i'm at my dad's house at the moment um i've just moved out of my house in bristol packed up my life um i go on tour in the uk for a month go on the floggy molly cruise and then over to australia and so i've got so much stuff backed up and i was like i've got no reason to return i've got nothing here that i need to be here for i can work from anywhere as long as i can get a few gigs so um and i'm going to go and write my third book down there and kind of treat it as like a writer's retreat so yeah three months in australia ending with the no effects tour and then i'll fly back after they're done so really they'll be amazing no effects in australia yeah i mean aussies are just the best aren't they best people yeah. most fun it's pretty great also just as an english person uh the first time i went to australia i was like this is great it's like the best combination of england and uh the states it's like you can get beans on toast a good cup of tea you know sausage you rolls get, stuff like sausage that yeah. rolls <laughs> exactly marmite <laughs> instead of vegemite but um, hey vegemite uh, but then it, you know, it feels like tropical and like you're in the States or something. Yeah. So that'd yeah. be brilliant. That'll be so fun. Yeah. I can't wait to catch up with you again. So listen, I'll let you go in a moment because I've kept you for, for long enough already and I appreciate your time and it's lovely okay. to, um, to hear your stories and, and learn more about you and your life before I let you go. Uh, I want to get into some of your, your own work and where people can kind of find some of the, uh, you know, the most, I guess insightful moments that really showcase who you are as a songwriter and an artist because you know i've heard sprinklings in in no effects over the years and getting to kind of explore the dancehall crashes stuff i feel like i know your you know voice a little bit better now but i feel like there's so much more still to explore and i'm excited to delve in so where do i and other people start you know getting to grips with with karina as a you know a solo artist and a you know a band leader Oh, I've lost you. The connection. Uh, oh. I think it's just a bad connection. Hold on, we'll get you back. You are there. There's just a slight lag. Can you, can you hear me now? Can is it still lagging? There we go. I think we're. Uh, Hello. We've caught up. Hello. 
Have you okay. got me? Um, well, I have a yes, I've got it does say it's unstable. Let me just make sure that it should you're, be. You're, un, you're unstable, Can Karina. You hear me okay? I asked you to tell me about your music and you've gone unstable on me. <laughs> I know. Can you hear? Is it okay now? Uh, talk is... a little bit more. It's, it seems to still hello, have a hello, hello, hello. Yeah, Weird. there's there's a very slight. Is that better? Yeah. Okay. Well, we um, I have a website that's just my name dot com www dot um Karina Zanike dot com, and then I also um sell my music on Bandcamp. Um, so that's another way just to kind of download my album and find out other new things that are kind of coming down the pipeline. I've got a few things in the works. I haven't talked too much about it because I didn't want to talk about it and then have it not be perfectly ready to go. So there are I some things it. that I'll be releasing. Some YouTube videos, of course, are always out there of different things that I've done that maybe aren't on my website and aren't on my band camp is um, Karina Danike dot bandcamp i'll link com. i'll link that and the website to the episode description so people can, Brilliant. Brilliant. can get them there so, yeah that's some of the some of the music that i write and some of the projects that i do that are separate from netflix and and what sort of world does that sit in in terms of like who the comparative artist might be um if you were to say it sounds a little bit like this for fans of this oh. it's influenced by this because it's not that's punk rock one. right not at all yeah, great. Not at all. It's it's a little bit you've got a little bit of like twenties, thirties era. That's my Maybe. jam. So I mean for me, one of my favorite TV soundtracks ever is Broadwalk Empire. Um right. and that is all of that stuff, that prohibition swing. Like right. love that stuff. Love that stuff. Yeah, so there's a little bit of that. There's a song called Boxing Glove, a song called Musée Mechanique on my album that kind of harkened to that time period 20s 30s exactly boardwalk empire kind of swing era fats waller people like that then it goes into a little bit of doo-wop um on a song called you're so quiet which has some of the hepcat guys singing on there with me and then we go into a little bit more 50s 60s rock and roll and then we go into a little bit of 80s um and spaghetti western so it's a little bit all over the place well, that just sounds aside from punk, which I love. That sounds like all of my favorite music, and I'm not just saying that. Like that is pretty much my wheelhouse of of absolute favorite stuff, right there. Doo wop, fifties rock and roll, spaghetti western, eighties new wave, and twenties swing. Yeah, it's it's all it's it's none of the yeah no seventies. It's just twenties, forties, sixties, eighties, and a little bit of like kind of sea shanty kind of stuff in there too. There's a little wow. bit of it. Yeah, I know it's 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 quite varied, but um, yeah, check it out and then you'll know because it's each song has its own little, little flavor. So, well, I'm sold. All right, good, <laughs> good job done. Only took us ninety minutes. I know. <laughs> just, plug, just plug my record, Matt. Now I never really do the plugs. That's not really what this show is about. It's about sharing stories and connecting and 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 getting to know the guests better and. Yeah, I'm really grateful for the times we've got to share out there in the live environment. And this was wonderful. And um, yeah, I will see you in a few months in the in Southern Aussie. Hemisphere. Um, it will be our winter times, but it will be their summer. So it will be peak 
sunshine weather. And uh, yeah, you got two nights in Sydney, Brisbane, and Melbourne. So bring it on. Um, that's it. Oh, for this, that's I it will. for this year, though, right? For no effects, they're done for for twenty twenty three. No more live right. shows. Yep. So that'll be the first series after uh, a little break, and hopefully, at that point, we won't all be sick like we were in Linz because that was <laughs> that was a rough that was a rough night for for us. But you know, as you said, fuck them. We did fuck it. Em. We did. We did a good. Um, we did our best. Well, but you yeah, didn't do your best, but you put in a sixty percent effort, and yeah. that is that is more that's, than that enough. is our best. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. What do you mean? <laughs> that's as high as we go, people. Yeah, we don't really go any higher. <laughs> <laughs> Karina, you're a star. Okay. Uh, thank you so thank much you. for your time, and uh, yeah, have a wonderful week. I'll let you know when this is going up, and and we'll talk very soon. Excellent, it's a pleasure. Thank you. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.